Good morning, everybody. Uh, congratulations, Nicholas and team. Yet again, uh, great to see you all. It's amazing how you fill the room here in London. It's not quite as full at the moment. Um, give people some time to come back in. Uh, so I'm Nick Brown. Uh, we've got a great panel here today that I'll try and help moderate. Uh, I'd like them to talk as much as possible. We've got Friedrich uh, Hesse, co-founder and MD of Berlin Base 044. Uh, we've got two ship owners who, as I think we'll learn, are more than ship owners, perhaps. Um, Purist Marines, Alistair MacDonald, and Navigator Gas CEO, Petter Mads, sorry, Mads Petter Zacco. Um, and Mark O'Neill, the CEO of Columbia Ship Management. So clearly throughout the Capital Link so far this morning, I feel like I've been here you know, for hours already. Um, there's been so much information, but we've been you know, not going around in circles, but I think a lot of the themes have been pretty similar. Um, in this session, you know, all about carbon, we're going to go into some more depth, hopefully, on, on some of the things that, um, you know, are really opportunities, perhaps, but are related to the themes of regulation and compliance with, you know, CII and the ETS, EU Fuel Maritime, the patchwork of trading schemes that seem to be developing, and the hope that the IMO catches up. Um, future fuel availability, what will those fuels be, and will shipping be able to secure them? I think Will Fairclough in the previous panel from Wa Kwong has got an interesting take on that. Um, but that raises questions you know, of price and logistics. Um, they need to be expert, to have expertise in those new fuels, um, design issues, safety, safety of operations, and training. They've all been mentioned, and I think we'll talk about them today. And, and overall, a need to reduce carbon footprints and optimize optimize operations now. Timing will be important, and I think that will affect decision-making. People have different views on when, how, and you know, whether they can do things. So maybe people want to do the same things, but at different times. Um, and of course, stranded assets and tail risk that I think Gary Vogel mentioned obviously are coming more and more into play. As people worry if they order a ship now, will there be a market for it when it comes off its you know, it's charter, even if you get a long one in 10 or 15 years, even some of the LNG carrier owners. And of course, partnerships, I would say collaboration. Um, but maybe a dawning realization that, that shipping is no longer going to be just about a ship. You know, so the involvement of partnerships upstream and downstream uh, of the ship owner operations um, and supply chains will become even more important for an industry that could look really quite different in a decade or so. So I've suggested to the panel we break it down into two key questions. What exactly is the change that you're navigating, that we're navigating, and what do you, you know, how do you describe that, and what are you doing to navigate that? So I'll start with Friedricha. If you could um, just kick us off, just to give your, your perspective on that, that immediate challenge that you're navigating. Yeah, I would um, describe the challenges as twofold, or the changes twofold. One is long term, and I'm, we've heard a lot about the new fuels and the, the challenge to get to carbon zero, and it will definitely take time. The other part is that regulation is starting now, and it's uh, significantly increasing the complexity in shipping. So the way freight or chartering teams have to work with finance teams now, uh, how stakeholders along the marine value chain need to cooperate, to work in a system like EU ETS is, I think, new to shipping. 
And it won't stop there. So what we can already see is that other regions are preparing for additional regulation and they are faster than the IMO is. So what we can expect or have to fear at least is that in the coming years we'll see a patchwork of different either ETS systems or additional carbon taxes, which will then affect certain regions, certain trades, and this will change the market prices in shipping. So next to supply and demand and all the effects we're studying anyway, we'll see regulation coming in as a significant force in who can offer what at what price and who can win money and, and who can't. So uh, handling this new complexity, I think, is, is a significant um, change that's coming to the industry. And I think shipping companies need to look at the ways they teach their onshore teams about this and support their onshore teams to handle, handle this new complexity. Okay, super, thanks, it's a great start. Mark, can I go to you? Complexity, is that keeping you up at night? No, I think... Uh... I think this, this, this seminar should be more about all about coffee as opposed to all about <laughs> carbon, because everyone's rushed off to get their coffee. coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, look, we, Columbia Group, uh, platform of services, and, and therefore we have to advise our clients on a multitude of, of different issues uh, pertaining to those uh, services. Uh, I, I think as an industry sector, we, 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 we worry too much about what the answers are, and sometimes those answers aren't uh, apparent, but what the answers are for our specific sector, and we all try and find the crystal balls to look into uh, and find those answers. What fuels are we going to be burning? Uh, what, how do we comply with all these various uh, regulations? I think what we have to do is rather like the racehorses that go into the stands with the blinkers and, and just looking down, we have to take those blinkers away and look at some of what the other industry sectors are doing, what our, what our clients are doing. We're very good at servicing our clients, but sometimes we don't look enough at what they're doing. I've got relatives in one of the uh, largest of the German uh, motor car industries, and they're much more advanced than shipping is when it comes to looking at uh, what will be the combustions and what will be the fuels uh, of the future. They're looking much more at technology to provide the answers. So therefore, as, as a service platform, we have to be uh, alive to that. We have to, Carlos mentioned, the eco-ship. The eco-ship is exactly spot on that we should be looking uh, at as an industry and thinking, well, maybe uh, a 15-year-old bulker in the future that's burning uh, a fuel oil, but in an eco-friendly way that has an, uh, an eco-rating that is as good as an LNG burning ship or is as good as an ammonia burning ship because they're looking at the holistic background to that, that there is a place for that. And, uh, you know, I think as an industry, we've got to look around that I'm happy to say, as a, as, a, as a platform service provider, we're able to look at these other industries, look at what the aviation industry is doing on IT to optimize. It's not just all about carbon, and uh, uh, that is really the blinkers that we've got to take off and look at this much more in, in an eco way. Okay, great. Well, if I go to Mads, um, how's this going to change you know, your, your outlook? What, what does the challenge look like to you at the moment? It's a major change. Uh, navigator gases uh, transporting uh, children compressed uh, gases, so like the ammonia, the LPG, the uh, petrochemicals and, and others. We own and operate about 56 ships, mainly in the handy size sector. And for us, this is a tremendous opportunity, uh, mainly because some of the uh, energy types that will be uh, transported in the future, like ammonia, for instance, are today being transported on our ships. 
And CO2 is another commodity that will be transported on a gas carry and also one that, that we are positioning ourselves towards. So I think there are massive business opportunities and I think uh, the complexity that we just talked about is also something that, uh, that is good for us because we are uh, good at, at managing com complexity. So we certainly welcome uh, the uh, result of this climate crisis that regulation is, is going to be kicking in relatively soon uh, with, the, with the IMO. Uh, new strategy that's coming that will be implemented by 25 into 27, uh, which just coincides, by the way, by the time that you could receive a new building if it's being ordered today. So uh, I think there's a lot of heavy thinking going on, including in our company, about what you do on, on new buildings uh, because uh, they have to be future-proof uh, before those orders are put in. And do you think those, those ships that could come out in 27 will be future-proof enough for whatever targets IMO is going to concretely I set. I think there are a number of, of shipping segments where people are sticking their heads in the sand right now and just hoping for the best and hoping it will be a slow uh, and gradual implementation. Uh, I, I think mainly in our sector where the uh, order book is relatively small, that's a result of people thinking really hard and being, uh, you could say, cautious, not wanting to put in new orders uh, because we don't know exactly what's going to be uh, the, the technology mix that will be the optimal. So. But yeah, I would be super cautious about putting in a vessel order today without thinking hard about how it can be retrofitted to new fuels because you'll have a very difficult time uh, discussing with your auditors and your banks and so on by the time the ship is delivered if you don't build a ship that is ready for this energy transition. Okay, great, thank you. Um, Alistair, uh, you've got quite a broad portfolio of different <laughs> asset types. Uh, and an interest in logistics, I think I understand, you know, not just, not just the ships themselves. Yeah, I mean, look, we have we have technologies in in batteries, uh, in in wind, in carbon capture, and in in gas, so across the full spectrum. And I think, you know, the ETS scheme when it was announced, best part of two years ago, really had a big impact on 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 garnering interest in those assets. And I think that's been very positive for Purus. And I think the wave of blue and green ammonia and methanol and the other fuels that come will be positive for shipping. But I think we do, as other people have said, need to take a little bit of a step back and not expect that it will just happen. And what do we need to do? There are, there are three Cs, the way that I look on, that will force change within the shipping industry. Firstly, carbon regulations, and we're seeing that with the EU ETS, with Fuel EU, with various other regulations. And like Friedrich said, I think ultimately that will become global in, in sooner rather than you think, because it's just free money for the EU tax and ship owners, as far as I can see politically. The second is capital, the capital providers, some guys in DAB in the front row, and you know the Poseidon principles is one thing, but you know what we're not really seeing fundamentally is a big difference between people investing in low carbon assets and, and, and conventional assets. I think there needs to be maybe some stick, but also some carrot for those people who are prepared to put better money and better, you know, better vessels on the water in order for them to work. And I think finally customers. Ultimately, if people don't want to pay a little bit more for a green asset, you know, you're not going to be able to fix a ship. And I think in part the carbon regulations offset that because the, the taxes and the various penalties may offset the charter rates, but it's still something that we need to think about. I'll pause there for you, Nick. Well, uh, uh, sticks and carrots. What, what's a good stick? What's a good carrot? Well, I think, I think we're very good at sticks in the yeah. EU, right? We're very good at sticks. We, you know, if you look at everything we've done, there's penalties, there's fines, there's taxes, right? But there's nothing incentivizing people to make change. And I think... Just going on a little bit onto that, one of the, if you look at ammonia, blue and green ammonia, low carbon ammonia space, there's 188.3 million tons per annum of announced projects worldwide. 
Right now, 15 million tons is moved seaborne. There's 188 million tons of announced projects, most of which will go seaborne because, by definition, it's there for exports. So it's a fundamental change. Now, the number of those projects that's taken FID is zero. That, that, that's green ammonia. Hmm? It, that's Blue and green, that, so low-carbon okay. ammonia. It's zero who's taken FID. And I don't think it's a case of, of, of money. I think taxes and subsidies will overcome these things. I think one of the things which is really troubling people is the infrastructure. It is once you've bought your product, what do you do with it? And that requires fundamental change in the import regions. You go to the Arrow region, there's not enough storage to take a single MGC of ammonia. How are you going to import one MTPA? How are you going to import 10 MTPA? We need fundamental change. Even if you want to move it inland to use an industry, how? Right now, you can't move it on train or truck or, or by, by water. Right, so things need to change. And I think the shipping industry, which sits on the fringes and says, well, I'll do ammonia, I'll do methanol, you won't. You won't because the infrastructure isn't there to be built. And it won't be the shipping industry driving the infrastructure. It will be inland industry that's driving the infrastructure because they need significantly more volumes. And so once there's 5, 10 MTPA coming into the Arrow region, then sure, why not have an extra 1 MTPA used for ship bunkering? And that's where the ship bunkering will come. But it will not be the tail wagging the dog, and I think the shipping industry needs to learn that it will have to facilitate onshore before it can take the fuels offshore. Okay, that, that's really interesting. I think that, that sort of I'm chimes with what I'm, Will was saying. I'm going to say I'm a little bit more optimistic than you, Alistair, and, and that has to do also with the, uh, the way that U.S. right now is with the Inflation Reduction Act is subsidizing some of the productions of uh, green hydrogen and blue ammonia and others, and, and we've really seen the activity. The, the way it has changed the, the dynamics over the last two years after that was implemented, I think, has been uh, bringing cause to, to, to optimism for me, and I, I think... Typically, the private sector responds to uh, when the business case works, and that means uh, if you are subsidized $85 per ton of CO2 that's sequestered, that can make your business model work for producing blue ammonia. And that's why I think we're going to see those um, projects also uh, hit that land side. Um, how fast, we'll see, but, uh, but I think the pickup in activity that we've seen, particularly on the blue ammonia side in North America, has been uh, very encouraging. Just very quickly, I do agree with that but the delay will be caused on the import side, not the export side. Well, on the import side, okay, so we come back to timing, potentially, as a consequence. And Mads, you're seeing that as a cargo to transport as well as a fuel for shipping? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, yeah, there are issues around the bunkering infrastructure, for sure. It's, it's going to develop and it's going to take time. I think the first place we're going to see it is, of course, in the ammonia transportation itself where it's, it's pretty straightforward to have bunkering uh, of ammonia-propelled vessels. So that's the easy one, and I think gas carriers is, is well positioned to be the early adopters of, of ammonia as a fuel. It's going to take a little bit longer for sure with some of the other uh, shipping segments. Okay, great. Um, Mark, just on that subject of ammonia, which Matt and Alistair have both raised, how, how do you feel about ammonia as a ship manager and managing ships that are... Uh, carrying a lot more of it, or, and certainly the potential to, to you know, use it for propulsion. Look, I, I think uh, ammonia will play its part. I, I, I'm, a, I'm more on the Alistair side of the fence than, uh, uh, than the mad side of the fence. I have to say if there is a fence to sit on, I, I think uh, the infrastructure will be key in this. We're, as a company, pioneering on some of our own vessels on, under the Scholler uh, owned vessels, the, the carriage of ammonia just to see, to try it on a trial basis. So we're looking at ammonia, we're looking at methanol. I think there'll be a whole plethora of different fuel options open to owners in the future as we, as we all 
been hearing about. So, you know, ammonia will definitely be there uh, in the mix for sure. Okay, great. Um, Friedricher, what, what do you think when you hear that? You know, is that more, more opportunity for you in, in your business providing services to, you know, these companies? I mean, when I hear that, it goes back to what I said initially. Uh, I think there's a long-term uh, debate about fuel types and how to supply them and how to transport them, and it's a very relevant debate, but it's not relevant to today's business, unfortunately. It would be great if it already were, but it isn't, and the majority of shipping is actually small ship owners. We have the big shots here today, and <laughs> they have, have teams that, that are capable of analyzing the situations. They have the capital to place certain bets on certain new technologies, and that's great. And I think the industry needs that innovation coming from the big shots. But we often also talk to those medium-sized, small-sized owners, and they need more certainty for their business, and they need to face the regulation now without having the alternative in place yet, or not even clear for the future. And they have those small teams. So it's, in many cases, it's the MD of the company having to deal with CII, EU ETS, fuel EU at Maritime, and they can't even you know, understand the differences between them. So for my company, we help with software and all these regulations. It's obviously a great market. But when I look at the industry and kind of take a step back from my, from my own uh, position, it's, it's really a challenge to handle that. And it's, uh, it's really necessary that kind of the cooperation that was mentioned by the panel before really happens and, and data is being shared and people try to help each other to manage this to keep the supply chains intact. Can I, can I yeah, I was going to bring you in, Mark, on that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, that's why organizations like ours are here. So the Columbia Group and, and other good uh, third party, second party managers or whatever you want to call them, describe them, service platforms are there to serve the smaller owner, to give, to bring in that scalability that Gary mentioned. There will always be room for the small uh, ship owner, ship operator in the future, providing they achieve scalability through cooperation and partnership with, with, with organizations uh, such as ourselves. I do think as an industry, uh, you know, we, on our platform of services, we also manage planes. I do see when you look at the aviation industry, when you look at what CETA, organizations like CETA are doing on the IT side for the aviation industry and bringing all of these airline companies together, cooperating in, in, in partnership, you know, we can do so much more in partnership. We, we, we don't scratch the surface of, of partnership. We talk about JVs, we talk about uh, collaborations, but we have to cooperate in these areas where there isn't really a commercial advantage. You know, why, why compete in these areas where there's no commercial advantage? There's so many areas that we can complete, compete on on service. Um, but I think on, on the whole issue of carbon, carbon zero, alternative fuels, safety in, in the handling and the, the training of crews on those alternatives, but we can cooperate and we should cooperate much, much more. And therein, for the smaller uh, owners, you know, we're the, the obvious solution. We, uh, companies like the Columbia Group, that can bring that scalability uh, to bear. Okay, great. Um, Mads, I mean, you're a fairly big company. We've talked about small companies. Um, do you, you know, do you, do you see the challenge in the same way? I think it's a great opportunity. Um, and I think it's, it's, of course, good for a company that has the resources and, and the systems to prepare for, for the change. So complexity and change is, is uh, something we are, we, are, we are happy about. 
Um, but of course it has to happen and, and this is where the, the regulation is so, so important. Um, and, and with the MEPC uh, 83 and 84 coming in the first and second half of 2025 implementing the uh, IMO strategy and, and those uh, market-based measures and, and, and other tools coming in, I think the, the road is paved uh, and I think it's, uh, it's going to put a lot of positive pressure on the, uh, on the sector to, to make the, the business case work. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and when we look ahead, you know, we've talked about the current landscape. Um, you know, what are you actually going to do now to navigate these challenges? Um, again, Mads. I think it's, it's very straightforward uh, what the initial steps need to be, and this is back to the energy efficiency discussion. Uh, today we at Navigator, we have installed uh, uh, high, speed, high frequency monitoring of our speed consumption on 60% of our ships, and by next year this time we'll have it on all our ships. Uh, the uh, sophisticated anti-fouling paint on 40% uh, of our ships today, and it'll in all our dry dockings going forward be implemented so that we have it throughout the fleet. The same with underwater uh, energy savings devices like Boscap fins and Muse docks and others. We'll be looking at the right mix to put it together. And we have 17 dry dockings just over the next uh, 12 months. So there's a lot of, this is really an, an, a moment of opportunity for us to get that all sorted out so we're prepared for, for that reduction in, in emissions as we go forward. So energy efficiency is super high on, on our agenda right now. Uh, but we are not ordering new ships with the, with the new technologies because we, we, we are in the tramp business as well and uh, we need to see the bunkering infrastructure in place before we, we go out on, on that one. Which is great news in, in a way because in our sector there's very little ordering activity, uh, particularly amongst the handy sizes and the smaller uh, gas tankers and that is uh, good for rates. You have an interest in a terminal as well. Yes. Is that an area you, you would see expanding? Oh absolutely because uh, this is back to the infrastructure discussion. We need to play a part in ensuring that the, uh, that the ammonia uh, and the CO2 can be stored and transported, brought on board ships, taking off the ships uh, to, to, to where it's being sequestered. So um, there are really some fantastic opportunities in also complementing the, the shipping part of the value chain uh, on land, uh, having a wider part of the, the supply chain here. Uh, and we're very eagerly uh, doing that and have some experience from our past. Uh, so. Okay, great. And, and Alistair, I mean, that, you know, that's similar in many ways to what you were talking about, that logistics element. Yeah, and I think one of the things is always to remember there's no one-size-fits-all solution in shipping. I think different solutions will be the, the best solutions for different shipping classes. You know, you, you look across our fleets and, you know, our wind assets have the potential to be zero emission by the early 2030s, courtesy of having offshore charging capability, because you happen to be, you know, in an offshore wind farm that's generating electricity. That's a clear path. With our ammonia MGCs, when that dual fuel technology becomes more readily available, you know, we'll retrofit to a dual fuel ammonia. And if you're carrying green ammonia, which is the plan, then those, that fleet can be zero emission again by the early 2030s. Uh, we have carbon capture scrubber units on some of our container vessels, and I think you'll see more carbon capture scrubber units being fitted, especially on the legacy fleet, where frankly, there are technical challenges in conversions and upgrades. Um, and I think you'll see more battery hybrids coming on play. You know, I think LNG is a wonderful transition fuel and will continue to be so, but ultimately that's a 20% reduction and getting out from 80% down to zero is, is a challenge within the LNG industry, uh, but it's also necessary. So you're going to see a number of different technologies being applied to different vessels and different types. And I think when you're outside of those carriers, when you're in the, you know, the cruise lines and various other things that the, 
uh, that Mark manages, you know you need to be comfortable on two things. One is that it's a safe fuel to operate. Two, that it's socially acceptable in the port in which you're in. And three, that it's readily available. And we all circle back to our favorite infrastructure point again. Yeah, okay, great, thanks. Um, I mean, definitely industry's got used to in tankers, bulkers, container ships, having one big two-stroke engine and, you know, a line of auxiliaries. That now is being challenged, isn't it? Um, different sectors are moving at different speeds in different ways. Uh, carbon capture, um, start, Friedricher, does, does that affect your, your solution? Are you worried about how that affects how you measure things and, and help with compliance solutions? I mean, we are, with our product, on the regulatory side. So as long as the regulator doesn't accept carbon ca capture as a countermeasure against having, you know, improving your CII or having to pay less for ETS certificates, uh, then we would care for it. Currently, we don't, but that's very unique to, to, to our business model. I would say, apart from that, it's definitely something people should look into, but I think it's also... Uh, a young technology, quite a complicated thing to do. There's uh, all the things were already mentioned, right? It's 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 a challenge and one of the options the industry has, I think, um, to deal with with the transition. Which incidentally, it's bonkers that carbon capture isn't scored under the EUTS. It's totally crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Just uh, can I? Yeah. Uh, if you if you look again at the the motor industry. Um, they, the German motor industry has allowed the continued production of combust the combustion engine for the foreseeable future. Uh, and when you talk to people in the motor industry, they say it's perfectly feasible that we will be burning uh, hydrocarbons, but the carbon will be stripped either at refinery level or in the, in the burning process. Uh, so don't rule out oil and gas. When you talk to the engine manufacturers, that by the way, most of them are owned by the, the, the motor industry, if you look at the big vessel engine manufacturers, they say it's perfectly possible for that to be technology to be brought in, in the next few years that will remove carbon uh, if it's not already removed at the refinery level. So I, I, I think, again, we, we made two vessels, two of Saudi Aramco's, well, in fact, one of Saudi Aramco's oldest offshore vessels into a smart ship, a totally smart ship using technologies uh, and, and the IT uh, optimization systems that we have. Those, that vessel had a lower uh, carbon footprint, a more eco-friendly rating than some of the newest vessels coming out, even the battery vessels. So it is amazing what technology can allow us to do to make the eco-ship. It's not all about carbon. Uh, it's about the eco-ship and, and, and making these vessels smart, using bubble technology, using uh, wind technology, using paints, using all the fantastic optimization tools that, that, that we, we're able to offer, but some of the other companies also, uh, also have, and, and making the whole vessel operation much, much, much more eco-friendly. I, I think the blinker, the carbon blinker, needs to come off, and we need to look at uh, alternative ways of rendering our operations more eco-friendly, because we will have time and the technology will be there if demanded to meet those regulations that are that are coming in but there will be uh, traditional hydrocarbons burnt for a long time there may not be carbon in those hydrocarbons but that will be taken out at the various stages hmm. how, how, how many ships do you manage at the moment we manage over 450 okay so what, what's the pipeline looking like for that kind of retrofit Solution. Look, I, I mean, I think uh, we're spending a lot of time advising our clients on um, carbon optimization through our performance <laughs> optimization control room. You know, the, it used to cost, to give you an idea, to make a small offshore supply vessel into a smart ship, 
then cost us 50,000 bucks. We can do the same thing for 15,000 uh, bucks now. We, we made the second vessel we turned into a smart ship, which was a, a, a jack-up rig, uh, was again a roughly the same. Now you can do it for 25,000, really completely to make this vessel smart and, and massively reduce its, its carbon footprint. We're talking, we're talking about sustainability. We're talking about carbon trading. Um, you know, we need to have the carbon trading platforms, the capture, the, re the, the, the recording and the trading. Um, we're, we're looking at all sorts of different uh, alternative fuels, et cetera, advising our clients. So I, I think it's an ongoing process. Uh, if we're ordering new ships or we're advising our clients to order new ships, what, what do we advise them? There's going to be a multitude of new fuels, but wait out. Um, that the technology will come to the rescue. And before we plumb for ammonia uh, uh, or methanol with all of the infrastructure problems that will exist, and, and rest assured, shipping will be right down on the pecking order. You look at the lube oil prices recently because shipping oil was right down on the pecking order. Uh, you know, we're not going to have ammonia, blue, green, whatever. We're not going to have methanol available to this industry for a long time. We're, 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 we're last, we're, we're, we're Johnny come lately because we're not talking enough to, our, um, to the other sectors. Can I ask the audience, um, uh, well, questions in a sec, but just how, how do you feel about ammonia? You know, who, who thinks that ammonia is a fuel of the future for the shipping industry? One. <laughs> a couple at the back there. Okay, uh, great. Let's take some questions from the floor. I had one there. Yeah. My question is, uh, I do not hear anything about E-fuels, synthetic uh, fuels. Look, I think biofuels, when, when I say it's not all about carbon, uh, that's exactly what I mean. I think uh, uh, biofuels will be an important, uh, it's in, sorry, it's biofuels and synth synthetic fuels will be part of, uh, part of that mix in the combustion. Uh, you know, we're, 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 we're always trying to move away from the combustion engine as tr we traditionally know. And I think sy synthetic fuels will be an important part of the, of the mix for sure. Uh, thanks, Mark. Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately you're just making electrons on one side of the on one side of the world, and how you shift it really depends on on demand. I mean, I, I speak to a number of producers; they'd rather turn it into green methanol, but to do that, you need a source of qualifying CO2, and that's actually very rare, especially because the rules of CO2 mean that certain CO2 doesn't qualify as green out into the future. So, if you're building a project with power plant CO2 only counts as green till 2040. So you need a 15 year payback on your project, it doesn't make sense. So there are some problems just on the regulation side of CO2 capture. If you want to turn it into bioenergy, ELNG, e-methanol, they're all broadly speaking the same process within reason. They're all broadly speaking the same cost. It really depends on your end market and your end user and what they want. Um, and I think every single molecule of synthetic or bio green fuels will be sold. Uh, there is a market for it, it's, it's fundamentally short. So um, I don't think it matters what you make, someone will take it. Yeah, 
I would say e-fuels are something that the airlines really look into, right? It's, it's an opportunity for them. It's something that the car industry is looking into, and I think it's very relevant for shipping. You can run it on the traditional machines, so that's nice. When it comes to the price for it, I mean, we've seen technological progress in humanity, so whenever we have a new invention, it's very expensive, and then eventually it will get cheaper. So if the volumes come, that would work. And again, regulation will help to, to make it worthwhile to invest because with, again, ETS and other taxes coming, I mean, even ETS with prices today is adding 300 euros to the ton of, of traditional fuel, right? Um, it makes it more expensive and, and the regulator will make it more expensive. So incentives for those new fuels will come. So I think it's a very relevant part of the, of the game. Okay, fantastic. We had a question in the audience there. Thank you. I'm a bit cautious of ammonia in case of a marine casualty because it needs to be stored at negative 45 degrees, if I'm not mistaken, and it will make a salvage operation very difficult, not because of oil spill kind of scenario, but just dealing with casualty. I may have self-killed my question, but um, here comes the question. How about nuclear energy? It is already being used by around 160 Navy submarines, so the technology is there. The safety is there, but is this feasible for commercial shipping? Thank you. I'll, I'll take it, because um, no, I think on the minus 45 point, LNG's at minus 170, liquid hydrogen's at minus 263. And minus 45 is a relatively easy, easy solution. As I understand it, if, if there is a leak in the water, it's actually quite benign. It just dissolves into the water, and I'm, I'm told it's all fine. But I take the safety point with ammonia. It is obviously a concern. Nuclear is a great solution. I love nuclear. I'm speaking to some guys outside. I think nuclear should be what we do more of. People don't like nuclear, unfortunately. People don't like a lot of things. Greta Thunberg's campaigning against wind farms in Norway. You know, people are never happy. But I think ultimately technology will move on. I think nuclear will at some point in time become a part of the solution. I hope it will. But uh, in the interim, it'll also have to be a number of other things as well. Well, I think we're going to have to end it there. Um, the clock's ticking down. Five seconds left. Thank you very much to a super panel. Thank you, Nikos. Thank you.